Welcome to Offense is the Best Defense, How Lois Law Firm Prevailed on Workers' Compensation Exclusivity Summary Judgment. Uh, this is a special webinar going a little outside the rotation, so thank you everyone for joining. Uh, if you were part of the prior uh, presentation and uh, there was a little bit of a dropout, I apologize. Hopefully we'll fill in the uh, gaps here. So let's go into the case background first. Um, the, uh, what we had here was a staffing company that lent an employee, the defendant, uh, to a bakery. The defendant assaulted a bakery employee when the plaintiff, another bakery employee, intervened and got injured. Uh, the plaintiff commenced a civil suit in New York Supreme Court against the defendant and the staffing company. The plaintiff, however, is simultaneously receiving workers' comp from the bakery's carrier. So what was potentially at stake in this case? Well, the workers' comp lien had already exceeded $500,000, uh, and there were more potential surgeries and treatment on the way, and permanency hasn't even been addressed yet. So a jury verdict could potentially triple the workers' comp lien because uh, in a civil trial, uh, the plaintiff will get to put the workers' comp lien up as evidence of their special damages. And then you consider the attorney's fee, and then you consider non-economic slash pain and suffering on top of that, so um, the median value of cases in this jurisdiction over the past 10 years is $600,000. Um, but if this uh, plaintiff's comp lien ends up ultimately around $700,000, which is entirely within the realm of possibility, especially after permanency, uh, you're looking at a jury verdict potentially in the millions of dollars, over $2 million. Um, so prior counsel on this case recommended, before Lois subbed in, uh, settlement as the best way to avoid this exposure. Uh, conversely, this is the exact reason why we immediately proposed the most aggressive and expedient course of action possible. And we're going to get into exactly what that was. So the first hurdle, we got to get around the first answer prior counsel filed. So we have CPLR 3018B. So prior counsel filed uh, their own answer to the complaint. They did not raise workers' comp exclusivity as an affirmative defense. CPLR 3018B says you have to plead all matters which if not pleaded would be likely to take the adverse party by surprise or would raise issues of fact not appearing on the face of a prior pleading. So you can see what we had to do here was get the answer amended and raise comp exclusivity before we could do anything else. Uh, fortunately, we were able to negotiate a stipulation with our adversary to do that uh, and you know we amended our answer and we're off to the races. So here are the steps to how we ultimately got to summary judgment. Number one, amend the answer. Number two, conduct basic pretrial written discovery. Those that, that's your bill of interrogatories, uh, notice for discovery and inspection, notice to admit, uh, mandatory CPLR 3101 disclosure, etc. Uh, independent investigation into potential fact witnesses. Gather evidence in quote-unquote admissible form and properly disclose it. Um, prove employment and co-worker relationship, uh, which is the only tribal issue of fact in this case, and we're going to get into exactly why that matters in a moment, uh, and prove legally why this relationship is fatal to the plaintiff's claim is going to be our last step. So summary, judgment, standard, and proofs. I said we'd just get into that. Uh, so it's the procedural equivalent of a trial. Uh, the standard here is no genuine issue of material fact. So any chance at all of a jury question equals denial of the summary judgment motion. If there's any issue uh, in the facts that could go to a potential trier of fact, be a judge or jury, summary judgment is improper. 
So the moving party has to show entitlement to judgment as a matter of law. It is very rare in negligence cases because even if the facts are undisputed, generally the court is still going to have to determine if the parties acted reasonably under the circumstances. Uh, I go into the negligence uh, standard in the subrogation webinar that we just aired yesterday, July 11th. So I recommend checking that out if you're interested in some New York causes of action. So the moving party must make a prima facie showing of entitlement to summary judgment by offering admissible evidence showing all relevant material facts are not in dispute. Once this showing is made, the burden shifts the non-moving party to prove that the material issues of fact exist uh, that must be resolved at trial. Evidence is always going to be viewed in the light most favorable to the non-moving party, uh, and the court gives the non-moving party the benefit of all reasonable inferences drawn from the evidence. So this is the uphill battle that you're fighting, is uh, every possible inference and every benefit of the doubt is going to go to the non-moving party. Let's talk about weaponizing the workers' comp law, so where our unique perspective gave us something of an advantage in this case. So Section 11, Bar Suits Against Employers for Work-Related Injuries, refers to workers' comp as the exclusive remedy. That's where the concept of exclusivity comes from. Section 29.6 extends this protection to coworkers, carriers, etc. The weird question in this case, the peculiar question, does Section 29.6 still apply when the defendant's employer is not the plaintiff's employer, but the two parties could still technically be called co-workers. So our advantage in this case is defending employers and insurance carriers on every front is what we do. How powerful is comp exclusivity? Uh, I just wanted to give these following um, circumstances just to make the point a little more poignantly. So it applies in each of the following contexts. Special employers, employer as alter ego, special employer and managing agency context, employer in joint venture context. Uh, parties are co-employees in all matters arising from and connected with their employment. That's some lovely language from Macharol versus Jamboy. Why this matters? Intentional torts, if the injured worker has accepted comp, are also barred by exclusivity. Even for willful, wanton, and malicious assault, the employee accepting comp means they have elected one of two inconsistent remedies and is stopped from suing the employer. This is from Legault versus Brown. All employers are protected. So this is where we start to turn on the uh, particular issue in this case. Um, the plaintiff has no business relationship or privity with the defendant's employer. The defendant is merely a special coworker. So let's remember that we had a staffing company lending an employee to a bakery. Plaintiff doesn't work for the staffing company. He has no relationship to them at all. Uh, the plaintiff actually works for the bakery. So um, is a defendant's general employer still protected when they have no business nexus to the plaintiff? Uh, we're gonna get to some cases that are more on point, but here's just a little brief statement that's a, something of a spoiler. Uh, when the employee has accepted workers' comp benefits, all of the workers' uh, employers whether joint ventures, parent and subsidiary, uh, corporate affiliates, or general and special employers are protected. And that's from the case Levine versus Lee's Pontiac. So if you're ahead of me here, you're probably realizing we got to establish general and special employment. In order to trigger uh, Section 11 and 29.6, we need to show an employment relationship. The seminal case on this issue is Thompson versus Grumman Aerospace Corp 
If you've ever litigated general special employment in front of the board, you'll probably see them cite to this all the time in the board panel decisions. So the employee can have two employers under the workers' comp law, a general employer and a special employer. Uh, the general employee can be considered a special employee if, quote unquote, transferred for a limited period of time, where there's a required clear demonstration of assumption of control by the special employer. Both employees are shielded once this is, or both employers rather, are shielded once this is established. What are the factors we look at in terms of this uh, assumption of control? The right to control the work, method of payment, furnishing of equipment, right to discharge, relative nature of the work. So special employment may be determined as a matter of law when this showing is made. The reason this matters is we need a determination from the judge at first that these parties are co-workers before we can actually have the summary judgment granted. But for one key thing that happens in this case. So before we get to that, let's talk about evidence in admissible form. An attorney's affirmation is not enough to establish facts since, let's face it, we do not have personal knowledge and you wouldn't want your attorney ending up a witness in the case anyway. Um, so based on the records we got in this case with our discovery, it's clear based on the OC-110A records from the board and plaintiff's discovery responses that there's a pending workers' comp claim. It's not really gonna be an issue showing that that's uh, something that's happening in this case. But how do we establish special employment of the defendant without EBT examination before trial transcripts? Well, the answer, witness affidavits from both the general and special employer. Uh, this is a very common argument that you're gonna see in uh, plaintiffs opposing summary judgment or any party opposing summary judgment cannot be granted without at least going to depositions, right? That's a, a fundamental moment of any case. That's where all the facts are gonna come out, presumably. Uh, you can't go to summary judgment without having at least a deposition transcript to work off of. Well, that's just not how the law works, unfortunately. Uh, once, the movement, once the movement has made a prima facie case, Mere hope or speculation that discovery may uncover evidence sufficient to defeat the motion is not enough to deny summary judgment. So once you make out your case in the first instance, the burden is on the opposing party to defeat your prima facie showing. The turning point, I mentioned but for one key fact we would have had to establish this general and special employment. In the opposition, the plaintiff pressed two arguments, that the defendant seeks to have the case dismissed without even going to depositions, again, that's something of an irrelevancy, uh, and that the staffing company is not protected because it's not the plaintiff's employer. Kind of makes sense, right? Why can't the plaintiff sue the staffing company when he has no relationship with them whatsoever and never has? Uh, normally, the cases on general special employment pertain to a plaintiff trying to sue their own second employer. So well, you'll, you'll see this defense typically invoked is when the plaintiff is lent somewhere else and you know due to the comp exclusivity bar, um, the special employer will actually file to dismiss the plaintiff's claim against them. So this is most often raised you know, by one of the two employers in this context when the plaintiff is the one filing. Um, the plaintiff in this case tried to pivot by arguing that the defendant was not acting within the scope of his employment uh, I'll get into how exactly we got around that. The key concession though, plaintiff did not dispute that defendant was a coworker. So let's go into the reply affirmation where we pounced all over that. 
at this point, we said the case is over in our reply affirmation in response to the plaintiff's opposition. He has conceded that plaintiff and defendants are co-workers. Uh, we made the argument dead as to one, dead as to all. Not, as, not only is the co-worker protected, but uh, any principles on behalf of the, or any principles of the co-worker are also protected if the co-worker was acting as their agent. Um, we argued that the plaintiff's attempt to pivot is in direct contravention of the allegations in their verified complaint. Uh, and regardless, it's based merely upon the assertions of counsel, which as we've established is impermissible. You need evidence in admissible form. Uh, so we argued that the allegations in the verified complaint said up and down that this was an employment issue. And then now we're trying to pivot just based on an attorney's affirmation? No, the judge shouldn't let them get away with that. Section 29.6 is not predicated upon the plaintiff and defendant having general special employers in common. Uh, if you're wondering the case law about that, don't worry, that's coming. So here's some helpful language. The legislature could scarcely have used stronger language than exclusive remedy. No common law action is permitted, whether directed against the negligent co-employee or his principal. It is a complete disability to sue when injured by a co-employee. Otherwise, the fellow employee is afforded less than complete protection. Roberts versus Gagnon. Uh, and we'll get into exactly why that logic plays out. But in this case, the plaintiff conceded the only genuine triable issue of material fact, which was, can you call these two parties co-workers? So our reply affirmation continued. Uh, if a principal of a defendant co-employee was held liable to the injured worker, the principal could then recover over against his agent, the fellow employee. Why is this a problem? Well, the court in Roberts concluded that the legislature used the language it did in 29.6 because it intended for uh, fellow employees to be free from liability under all circumstances. That is a direct quote. Um, so the bar on suit against co-employees extends to those vicariously liable in derivative actions. You see this very frequently in the motor vehicle accident context where there might be a separate vehicle owner. Um, there's this other case, Nasso versus Lafada. The Court of Appeals finds that it is not merely that the negligent employee is immune from suit, but rather the injured employee is precluded from proceeding in any manner other than under the workers' compensation law. So you can see we're starting to uh, circle around the real heart of the argument at this point, just pointing out how strong Section 29.6 actually is. Powerful language in Roche v. Jones. I recommend filing this one away under your cap. Uh, the Court of Appeals holds that the workers' compensation law clears all doubts away. And here's a lovely little quote. The statute, having deprived the injured employee of the right to maintain an action against a negligent co-employee, bars a derivative action which is necessarily dependent upon the same claim of negligence for which the exclusive remedy has been provided. Here the plaintiff received a right of compensation in exchange, so they're talking about it as if it's a kind of bargain or an election of remedies, if you will, uh, in exchange for the loss of the right of action against the negligent co-employee. Why is this significant? Well, just barring the negligence claim against the defendant and the derivative negligence claim against the staffing company uh, would have been insufficient in this case because the plaintiff's complaint included an allegation of negligent hiring, training, and retention, 
which is its own separate claim distinct from the derivative action. And what this is saying is, again, what we argued in our reply affirmation, debt is to one, debt is to all. You can't have any claim whatsoever derivative from this work accident against a principal of an agent co-employee. Um, so the plaintiff's complaint included this allegation, but we were successful in getting around it, even though it was a separate cause of action. So here's a directly analogous case. I said we were uh, circling the real heart of the matter for a few cases there. So Lewis versus Summit Office Supply. The plaintiff was an employee of Manhattan Transfer Inc. We're just gonna go into the facts. Uh, and was injured by a forklift being operated by defendant Carbone, who was an employee of Summit Office, Office Supply. So Summit asserts an affirmative defense of workers' comp exclusivity. The Supreme Court finds that defendant Carbone was a special employee of Manhattan Transfer, which is plaintiff's employer. So here we had this employment relationship determined as a matter of law. The second department, Appellate Division, which by the way is where this case would go if it gets appealed, um, has this fantastic quote that's directly on point. So, given indicia of control and supervision over the defendant Vincent Carbone exercised by Manhattan Transfer, the Supreme Court properly concluded as a matter of law that the defendant Vincent Carbone was a special employee of Manhattan Transfer, and because defendant was a co-employee of the plaintiff, the plaintiff's sole remedy was workers' compensation. So, I mentioned we would talk about uh, the scope of employment argument that they raised for the very first time in their affirmation and opposition. So even assault is presumed to have arisen out of employment absent evidence of personal animosity as motivation. I'm sure if you've ever litigated the issue of whether an assault falls outside of uh, scope of, and course of employment, um, you've been railroaded by this language before in these decisions saying that unless it comes from a strictly personal motivation, uh, there is a presumption that it arise, arose out of employment. Um, when the injured worker accepts compensation, the workers' comp law bars suit against coworkers and employers, despite any allegation that the coworker was acting outside the scope of employment. So the argument we made in this case is plaintiff cannot have it both ways. If the accident is outside of the scope of employment, then why is the staffing company liable at all? Uh, the plaintiff and defendant being insured under different workers' comp policies, that's something else they raised, is likewise irrelevant. Uh, there is no evidence of intentional harm by the defendant such that the claim falls outside workers' comp law. Uh, again, remember that the plaintiff actually intervened voluntarily in a scrap between the defendant and a different bakery employee. Uh, so there was no intent as to the plaintiff regardless. Uh, even if the plaintiff was tar the target of the intentional assault, the acceptance of workers' compensation benefits bars suit against the coworker. Your time to argue that it fell outside of the comp law was before you accepted comp benefits. Uh, the plaintiff makes this argument for the first time in their opposition, and we said that they should be stopped from posthumously changing pleadings with an attorney affirmation, uh, and it would seem the judge agreed. So let's get to the decision and order. So in a decision filed June 27th, uh, the Justice of the Supreme Court grants the motion in all respects and dismisses plaintiff's complaint with prejudice. Uh, the defendant's, defendant's staffing company was awarded costs and disbursements associated with defense of the action. Um, I will note that a decision and order, it can just be thought of as permission from the judge for the clerk to enter judgment in accordance with that decision. So we did file our proposed judgment with the county clerk seeking formal entry of judgment and award of costs and disbursements. 
once that is formally entered, we serve that with notice of entry. That starts the timeline for appealing the decision. So how do we fight and win? Where prior counsel waived or uh, wanted to avoid litigation, we leaned headfirst into it. There is no reason not to go, swing, go down swinging in every single one of your cases uh, because at bare minimum you might be able to reduce the exposure if you show you're willing to fight. Even if you uh, are ultimately headed for a loss, you might be able to leverage a favorable settlement. We recommended an aggressive course of action right out of the gate and we agreed upon it with the client uh, right from the start. The entirety of our defense efforts all along were geared toward proving our theory of the case. Uh, if you want to hear more about that concept, putting the theory of the case up on the board and connecting the dots from point A to point B, again, I'd recommend checking out yesterday's subrogation webinar from July 11th. Uh, despite pressure from the court, we never recommended anything more than a settlement offer for nuisance value. Why? Because we believed all along that this was a strong case and that we were going to prevail. We applied pressure immediately. There is no reason to wait for depositions uh, when we can make our argument with witness testimony. So um, we're not going to needlessly drag out litigation uh, or incur further litigation expenses when depositions and EBTs are not going to reveal anything that we don't already know. Uh, we weaponized our expertise in the knowledge of the workers' compensation law. Again, prior counsel didn't even raise it. Uh, that's something that stuck out to us as a huge red flag immediately. Um, where the exposure could have been in the millions of dollars, the exposure is now zero, and we were awarded costs. All of this is despite prior counsel, counsel's failure to raise exclusivity and their desire and recommendation to settle. Um, so before I wrap up on this webinar, uh, I just wanted to do a small PSA that I should have done at the outset. Um, no case is won or lost in a vacuum. Every single one of them is the byproduct of effort and collaboration and uh, diligence, and most importantly, uh, team effort. So um, while I was the one making legal arguments and signing off on the papers, I will say that the lion's share of the work was done by senior paralegal Jennifer Andrews. She is the one that got the witness affidavits in the first place, had a notary sent out to one of our witnesses during COVID when they were afraid to leave the house. Uh, so we got over that particular hurdle. She gathered all the exhibits. She handled all the filings. Uh, any victory like this is impossible without the support of everyone. Uh, and I just wanted to acknowledge Jen's role in helping secure the, this uh, verdict for our client or this result for our client. Uh, so with that out of the way, I know this says live question and answer, but this is uh, a recording, so sorry about that. Feel free to send uh, cmajor at loisllc.com. That's my email. You can send something along and I'd be happy to respond if you have any questions. You can also always just give me a call. Uh, if I'm not available, we can always set something up, but I am available to discuss this topic more if you ever need to or would like to. So thank you very much for attending and I hope I see everyone next month for the Major Mondays webinar in August.